0: It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, summer definitely has started. Uh, Russ has been gone, Duke left, and Glenn packed up and left yesterday. So that means now Joel, myself, and Yancy, and a few others, like Dr. Irwin, uh, who's already doing work this morning. We got uh, a lot of lifting to do this summer, but uh, it's a joy to be with you, to worship, and to be blessed uh, through the ministry of the Little Pages and uh, the work that God is doing here. So. Thank you all for letting me be a part of this. We are continuing our series in the Book of Psalms, and today we look at Psalm chapter 98. And we want to, as we continue the study of uh, the Book of Psalms, to understand the power of the Book of Psalms and let these words form and shape us as we long to be a singing community, Um, people of God responding to the grace uh, with not only our hearts our lives, but even through our music, knowing that God intends us to offer ourselves in that way. So join with me as we pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we are grateful that you long to feed us with your word. Thank you for the songs and the prayers, even this morning, reminding us of your kindness toward us, that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us your spirit Your word, gift of music, and even this community to be reminded again of the call that you have given to all of us to lift up our eyes unto you, Christ our Savior, and to live each day faithfully in response to the grace and the covenant, the promise that you have given to us. And we pray that you would strengthen us to that end in Christ's name. Amen. Music is the language of the heart. And like stories, music has a way of speaking powerfully to our souls. This week, as I was preparing for this sermon at Starbucks, you know, you get a lot of random songs playing in Starbucks, but all of a sudden, Michael came on. Jackson, obviously. And uh, man, before long, I was transported. I was uh, back in my eighth grade uh, dance, with not a care in the world, you know, goofing around with my best friends, longing for days to come. And it was a sweet moment of like five minutes just getting caught up in all the different times, different universe, really, of celebrating, having fun uh, with my eighth grade friends. And I thought, man, they don't make music the way they used to. And science confirms the power of music. In her book, The Power of Music, Elena Haynes writes, scientists have found that music stimulates more parts of the brain than any other human function. Any other human function. That's why she sees so much potential in music's power to change the brain and affect the way it works, and so on and so forth. And she comes up with many different applications for music in the way that we can use music to bring healing and restoration The Bible has always affirmed this. God, who created us and also gifted us with the gift of music, has called us to be a singing community, that we as God's people would come to him in worship as we give our hearts, as we give our resource, but as we give our praise, as we sing to him. Ever since the first recorded song in Exodus 15, God's people have sung different songs on different occasions, really to help In worship, whether it's a song of thanksgiving or song of lament, song of remembering, song of anticipation, God has given us different songs so that we can come to borrow these words, to use them in expressing our hearts to offer ourselves to the Lord, but also to allow the words to speak and minister to us. And notice in different psalms, you get different inscriptions at the beginning of the psalm telling us what the psalm is about. Some are very specific and detailed, and some have no description at all, but Psalm 98 is the only psalm with a generic title, a psalm. No context, no genre, or even an instrument for which it was written for. I think, I thought about this for some time, and I think the fact that it is so generic, that it has no context, no genre, no instrument, Right? I think it's telling us something. That this song is an everyday song and should be sung quite regularly. Why? As we will see here in a minute, it reminds us to look to the Lord who has done great things and look to him who will do great things and to respond by giving our hearts in praise and worship today okay so we're going to use verse one as an outline for us this morning and look at two things simply the what and the how so let's go to the first point what are we called to do sing to the lord a new song the psalmist says in verse one in an age where human emotion is deified it seems odd that the bible commands god's people to praise it feels artificial and even inauthentic, or worse yet, something forced to appease a despot. As a fair, new Christian, C.S. Lewis, an author and thinker, or uh, who's written a number of good books and articles to help us to understand the truth of God, found the command to praise God distressing and even stumbling in reflections of the Psalms, Lewis writes, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. All this, however, changed when Lewis considered and reflected upon the idea of admiration. Justin Taylor's article in C.S. Lewis is helpful here. Lewis operates on this premise that a person or an object is worthy of admiration in a sense that admiration is the correct, adequate and appropriate response to that person or that thing and that failing to admire it means we have missed something of great value. And Lewis then applies this to God and argues that God is that object to be admired simply for having entered the real world. We often praise God for all the good things that he has done, and we should. But the Bible calls us to worship for who God is, period. God does, the, the Bible does not justify our worship of God by listing all the things that he has done and then calls us to worship, rather, it holds out the beautiful and glorious picture of our God, and that's enough. And Lewis gets at that and says, God is that object to admire simply for having entered the real world. And he goes on to say, and not to appreciate Him is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost. At all. And Lewis discovered that the psalmist, in imploring others to worship, was simply doing what all of us do when we enjoy and worship something. We break out in spontaneous praise. When we see a beautiful child, or eat something delicious, or watch a spectacular play, we break out in praise. No one has to exhort us. In fact, the praise, the expression, the often wordless expressions complete our enjoyment of it, as Lewis goes on to say. And we do this with lesser things all the time, do we not? I remember recently when the buzzer went off and the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup. I mean, not only me, but entire DC went nuts. Even those who don't know a thing about hockey they were caught up in this momentum. And they were like, What just happened? I don't know. Was that a touchdown? Praise God. It doesn't matter. Why? Because we were created for worship. We are our, I guess, at our creatureliness when we behold something so admirable, so beautiful, so glorious, that all we can do in response is to praise. But there's something unique to Christian worship, and Lewis continues, and that's this. Praise is not something we offer up to the Lord only, but it is a two-way exchange. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, God is enthroned under praises of Israel, and his presence is not static, and he's not going down a checklist to make sure that we praise the way we should. Rather, he's there to receive our praise as we pour out ourselves to him, and in response, he gives himself to us. It's this iteration of us responding to our God by giving our hearts in praise, and God receiving that and pouring himself, his beauty, his glory, his majesty, and and showing us, reminding us once again of his grand promises for us. And as we behold that, receive that, we then give our praise to him. It's the cyclical action of receiving and giving that goes on between God and his people. In other words, worship at its core is a reenactment of the covenant promise when God said, I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, every Sunday morning when we come to worship, we renew our covenant. As as God's people, we stand before him to offer up our hearts. It's an act of faith saying, Lord, I believe and I commit yet again to you. And singing praises plays an important role in this covenant renewal in that we remind ourselves of the covenant promises, but we also sing back to the Lord, our commitment to say, this is what we long to be shape in us, the very things that you have said, make it real in our hearts, the very things that you have promised. Our longing, one day, as the psalmist says, is that we will be able to sing a new song. And uh, on that day, I believe we will all have voices like Russ, and it's going to sound good. And on that day, all creation will join in in the, go- in the great, chorus that we will be singing forever and ever. In fact, I believe in heaven, our very existence will be praise and worship to God. Martin Luther said, Every saint in heaven is as a flower in the garden of God, and holy love is a fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth, and with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is as notes in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the lamb forever. It's a beautiful picture of how our very existence is the sweet fragrance of worship, a delight to our God. I think what's true of that age is actually true today. That God looks down on us even now and sees something beautiful in us. He sees in us not our failure to do what we ought to, but he sees in us Christ and his righteousness covering us. And God is pleased, he is glorified, he is honored in our very existence But there is something to that age when we get there that our praise and our song would take on a whole new meaning at a different level altogether. And C.S. Lewis, reflecting on this, he says, in the meantime, it's like tuning our instruments. Meaning, we offer imperfect praise to our God. Our obedience, our faithfulness, As as much as we desire these things to be reflective of the worth and the glory of God, they're not quite there yet. It's imperfect, it's broken at best. And he says, it's like tuning our instruments for the great concert that will come one day. I thought about this and I I think it's right. I think uh, C.S. Lewis is right that our best effort to praise God now is a rehearsal of the real thing to come. And sometimes practicing that instrument is difficult, isn't it? It's painful. I remember uh, one of my kids getting really excited about learning a new instrument and brought home a violin. Learning a new instrument is very difficult and painful for others. And as we had to bear through hours of what sounded like a dying animal upstairs, C.S. Lewis's quote reminded me that that's sort of our best effort in the meantime. But praise God that we have a good and gracious Father who delights even in imperfect praise. That he rejoices over us with singing and dancing And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters before his father. This is what we ought to do, to offer praises, knowing that one day our praise will be perfect. But in the meantime, we continue on practicing, tuning, getting ourselves ready for the great concert to come. But how do we do this? How do we do this? Because when we talk about praising God, as we talked about earlier, in in an age where we have deified our emotions, sometimes trying to get to church Sunday morning is the hardest thing to do. And circumstances in life have a way of, really, just robbing us of our joy. And it is so hard to get ourselves to sing, let alone believe in the words we're singing. So we understand the standard before us, we're to sing, we're to make new songs, to offer new songs to the Lord, to give our hearts in worship to him and to be open, to have an open posture where we can receive him. But how do we do that? That leads us to our second and final point. How? The psalmist reminds us, for God has done marvelous deeds for God has done marvelous deeds. Read with me verse one again. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In a similar imagery, in Isaiah 52 verse 10, we read, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our god or to use a more current vernacular god rolled up his sleeves and went to work every year at our network session retreat we go to uh, one of the elders tom carpenter's farm and uh, one of the things that we do at the retreat is to work on tom's farm as a way of saying thanks for hosting us and uh this past year Uh, Tom gathered us and basically said, hey, look, there are, uh, you know, five, six different things that we need to get done. And he was basically eliciting volunteers. And and he got to this one thing where he said, I need one person, just one person, to break up this huge concrete slab. And it shouldn't take more than 20 minutes. And I thought 20 minutes is better than 40 minutes of work in this heat. So I volunteered. I said, I'll do it. And uh, I got and picked up this huge sledgehammer And I made my way back to look at the concrete slab, and it is five times bigger than I'd imagined. I mean, to me, it looked like a football field. What's worse, it's sitting on top of grass, meaning no matter how hard I hit this thing, the ground is going to absorb all the impact, and this thing would never break. I was like, 20 minutes my butt. All right, well, here I go. And uh, I started swinging away, man. I, I gave it my best shot. I thought about my children, all the difficult times they gave me. And I, I said, oh, man, this is getting even, you know. And for about five minutes, I gave it my best. And, and there were maybe like four dents on this concrete slab. And I, this is going to take two years. And then I saw the good uh, Dr. Reverend Erwin Eds, who... Uh, Works out, as you know, and um, I said, Erwin, man, I need help. Why don't you come and do this with me? And, uh, you know, he took the hammer, and, and he started pounding away. Five minutes later, I was so encouraged because he also made only five dents on this thing. And I thought, good, it, it, it's not just me. And uh, we're trying to strategize different ways to, to basically break this thing up. And uh, part of our strategy was bringing Russ uh, in. <laughs> and uh, we got Russ in to do this. And Russ probably talked more than he worked. Um, <laughs> but uh, all that to say, at the end of all this, man, we were, we were hurting. I mean, we broke a few pieces, but I mean, we had long ways to go. And that's when Yancey showed up. You guys know the Yancey from Meridian Hill? OK, so you got like weightlifting strong like Erwin, and then you got country strong like Yancey. Boy, when he showed up, man, he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work. And that brother wasn't even trying. The rest of us, we were like, I mean, we were trying. It looked like we were trying. And Yancey was carrying on a conversation, talking with us while just breaking this thing up. And I thought, wow, there is certainly difference between those who hit the gym and those who actually worked on a farm. And so when I read this passage in Isaiah 52 talking about the Lord, how he will roll up his sleeves and go to work, I thought about Yancey and how he went to work with skill and strength to break this rock. And, And this is basically, in a nutshell, what God has done. He looked at his people who had been given all the promise the law and the promise of god the prophets and the king and yet they were unable to get the job done they were unable to bring the light to the gentile nations they were hurting they did their best i think but all they had to show for was this few deads, and nothing was getting done and the lord then showed up and he said move aside and he accomplished what we could not. got to wait, though. we we got to wait until we get to the gospel part. But you see where this is going, right? He has accomplished marvelous and wonderful things on a grand scale. The salvation of his people and the nations witnessed it. You see, Christian faith has historically believed that salvation is a dual display of God's mercy and justice. They go hand in hand. In fact, God's mercy is shown through his justice, and we see this most clearly on the cross. God's mercy was on full display as Christ, the Son of God, took on the full wrath of God, but that act of mercy, if you will, did not negate retribution or payment for sin. But Christ took it all. He became sin. He, he took on the curse of sin upon himself and drank, as if you, uh, if you will, to the very last drag, the very last drop in the cup of wrath. And one of the instruments listed in verse 6 is a trumpet, an instrument commonly associated with the Lord's judgment. And we see the two go hand in hand. Trumpet and judgment go hand in hand. In in Joshua chapter 6, as God judged Jericho, and Jeremiah chapter 4, as God judged Israel, it was such a common association that the Feast of Trumpets One of the three main festivals commanded by God came to celebrate the final victory of God when he will right all wrongs and bring justice on earth. You see, this feast of trumpet where the people of God heard the blast, the the trumpet blast, it definitely brought them back to all the times that God executed judgment upon Israel's enemies to show mercy and deliver his people. But it also pointed them forward to one great day where they would hear the judgment, where they would hear the trumpet of God one final time, where God would come and bring justice to the nations and bring about his salvation. And it was to elicit hope for the people of God, to look forward to that one day where every wrong will be made right where God would undo the curse of sin and usher in the peace, the true shalom, the echoes of Eden, and bring about his kingdom. God has done marvelous things, but the best is yet to come. Notice the verb tense again in Psalm 98, verses one through three. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has Done marvelous things. He has worked salvation and so on and so forth. The Psalm, most likely a post-Babylonian exile Psalm, parallels Miriam's song in Exodus chapter 15, which celebrates God's deliverance from Israel. God's Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And verse three says, "The ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God, and many did." We read about this account in the Old Testament where. Egyptian priests recognized the plagues as a finger of God Rahab who heard detailed accounts of God's mighty deeds and came to faith and the terror which fell upon all the inhabitants of the land but all this was a sneak preview a dress rehearsal if you will of the real thing that was to come verse 9 points at this it says let them sing to the Lord for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalmist looks ahead to a future day when God will bring about his great redemption again. The trumpets will sound and bring the feast of trumpets to his fullest consummation, the final and complete victory over sin and death. And it won't just be Canaan, but the ends of the earth will see the salvation of the Lord. And at that moment, the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And how do we know that God will do this? That he will fulfill the promise that he has made? Because of his love and faithfulness, as mentioned in verse three. Verse three says, he has remembered And his faithfulness, he has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. And the hope that we have as God's people is that he will always remember his love. And he will always be faithful to his people. It's his chesed love, the steadfast love that is our hope that anchors us to the promise of God. Knowing that one day God will do everything he promised Just as he loved and remembered and delivered Israel from their bondage, God who loves us, who remembers us, and the promise will deliver us again. On that day, he will remove the oppression of evil, the bondage of sin, and the slavery to corruption, and restore the glories of Eden that we sense and long in our hearts. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with my non-Christian brother, literally, my younger brother, and he asked, why do you still believe? Why do you still have hope? And why do you still think that Christianity is the only way? He has grown up in the church, and he has heard it all, and he probably knows more than he should. He would visit churches and come back and tell me that that sermon wasn't Christ-centered enough. Or it was too legalistic. I mean, the guy knows the Bible. He understands preaching. And in his mind, he doesn't understand why me, his brother, still holds on to what he thinks is foolishness. And it was one of those, like, aha moments. I didn't rehearse this, obviously. But with all the things going on in the world, I said to him, I believe because Christian faith is the only thing that acknowledges all the longings of my heart. It is real. And it it says, the longing that I have, longing for justice, longing for peace, longing for true shalom, is good. And it will one day find its fulfillment when Christ returns. I look at the world, I read the headlines, and I know that something is not right, that something is so broken. And no other ideology, no other religion addresses those things and holds out before me the hope promise fulfilled and certainly atheism is not that hope because it does not value people the way it should and other religions it basically gives us 10 15 20 40 steps for us to become a better person but that doesn't acknowledge the longing in my heart and puts the onus on me to do better and that's not the answer for the first time I heard him say hmm That's pretty good. And I think that's what the psalm is doing for us. It acknowledges all the longings that we carry with us. As we read the headlines, and as we see the brokenness of this world, the Bible says something has gone terribly wrong at some point. And God has done something about that and he will do something about that. He has rolled up his sleeves and stretched out his arms, and just as he delivered his people from Egypt, God will do that again. How? Because God loves us. He is faithful to us. He has covenanted with us, and as Chris mentioned earlier, back in Genesis 15, God alone walked through the torn animals to say, I will do this, and may this happen to me if I don't uphold my end of the bargain. And he knows that only he can accomplish the very things that's required of us. And so as God's people, we look ahead to that one great day, not with fear, not with fear, not even with sense of guilt, And shame, but with great hope. Hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? We look ahead to that day with great hope because God's hands and arms have worked a better salvation for us. The hands and arms of Christ were stretched to perform a miraculous thing on the cross as He's shown us the full mercy and the full love of God as he was pierced for us, for our sin. And I believe Jesus continues to remind God the Father of this great truth. Verse 3 again says, he has remembered his love one of the high priestly function of Christ is that he stands as our advocate, our savior, whose blood is more righteous than the blood of Abel, to stand before the Father to say, I have done, I have done that. When we sin in ways that we could not even have imagined and we look at it and we wonder, what is God gonna do about this? Christ, our advocate, our Savior, stands before, between us and the Father to say, I pay for that. I pay for that. We struggle to live out the gospel in our family and work life, and we feel defeated, we feel guilty, we feel discouraged, and we wonder, can I ever be the person that God has called me? And Jesus says, no, I, I'm going to do that. In fact, I have done that. If you go back and read the book of Romans chapter 8, it says we're already not only sanctified, but we're already glorified. Past tense, it's already done. And God remembers, the Father remembers His love and His steadfast faithfulness to us because of Christ and the work that he is doing even now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I praise God that even in our worst day, in our worst day, people hear this, the Father is reminded that you are more than conquerors in Christ, that you have been raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that you have been glorified, heirs to the throne. And that you have been received as sons and daughters with all the privileges, with all the blessings that heaven can afford. On that great day when Christ returns in the trumpet sound, we will sing to the Lord a new song. But until then, we continue to sing our messy and imperfect song with hope. That when we see him face to face, that we would be transformed, our songs renewed, and that we would be able to praise God the way that our hearts long to. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. Thank you that you have worked a greater salvation for us. Jesus, thank you that you paid the price, that you gave it all, that in you and through you, we might know the Father's love for us. Lord, receive our hearts, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.